This is People Who Play, a show about the art of playful living. I'm Emma Warrillow, researcher, writer and part-time mermaid. And I'm Ben Martin, content creator and nostalgia junkie. Every episode we discuss family life, playtime and we interview a guest who has found a way to play at life. From creatives to educators to comedians, our aim is to inspire more grown-ups to grow down and unleash their unique play powers. If you'd like to join our play crew and find more inspiration and info on play, follow at playful underscore den on Instagram. And for all your retro feels, find me on Instagram at benflyingretro. I'm on there too, at Emma Warrillow, E-M-M-A, W-O-R-R-O-L-L-O, really. This podcast drops bi-weekly on Mondays, but if that's not enough to get your playful vibes vibing, you can also join my Patreon for £5 a month and you'll get a personal pod from me, which drops alternate Mondays. Plus, you can now watch the video interviews of our guests directly in there too. We really do appreciate all your likes, subscribes, follows and shares. These digital high fives really mean a lot to us and help us to grow the show. Okay, let's get on with the episode. It's playtime. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It is really exciting to be able to share this episode with you today. I had such an informative and just sort of heartwarming conversation with my guest today who is Laura Walsh from the Children's Foundation Starlight. She is super knowledgeable and really helps us to understand the role of play for children who have serious illnesses and for families who are really going through uh, difficult times. I really wanted to have Laura on the podcast and have her talk to us all about how play is so important in times that are really unplayful. I think when we um, consider play and we think about what comes to mind, um, often we may see imagery that is like fun and joyful and colourful and loud and all of that sort of stuff. And we can tend to associate it with times that are good, the good times. But where it's magic can truly, truly cast a spell that is so impactful is actually in times that are not so joyful. And Laura, whose role is the head of play at Starlight, um, she is leading the team who protect play for children with serious illnesses. And what they do at at Starlight, um, Laura does with her team, is they um, provide play professionals, they provide um, loads of um, tools, they provide distraction with toys and games, um, and they put playful experiences in places that are unplayful, like before maybe you have to go and get a injection or give blood or have a surgery and the way that Laura explains the work that these play professionals do um I mean it sort of blew me away really they are so so important of course there have been play professionals in the health service 
for many many years um, and it's so important that an organization like starlight is continuing to to make sure that they um continue to be there for children and protect their right to play um, i really really hope that you enjoy this conversation and that it gives you a lot to think about um, i loved meeting laura i think that starlight is an incredible um, charity um, if you are looking to support them um, all of the information is in the show notes um, do go and check them out um, give them some love support them because the work that they do is phenomenally important here is our conversation Laura welcome to the podcast thank you so much for your time today in coming to speak to me I am so excited for this conversation and think that you're going to be able to teach me and our listeners a lot today so thank you for being here so lovely to be here Emma and meet you thank you so much I'm really excited your bio um your role now is head of play at Starlight which is an amazing yeah. title and we're going to talk 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 about that but your bio also has some fascinating aspects to it you are a committee member of the International Play Association you have mm -hmm. an MA in children and play you had um an incredible role at great ormond street and now of course you're doing your work with starlight you are a true play expert and a, and a, a, a pied piper of play <laughs> which is what i like to sometimes consider myself as yeah. can you just off, off just right from the start let's just hear from you why does play matter? Why is it important that we continue to allow space and opportunity for people to play? Wow, what a build-up. Thank you so much. I oh just coming back to that, I always like to say that actually I think I need to check myself and it's the children who are the experts in Absolutely. play. And I'm I'm merely an interested observer. Um I like to think that as adults, the best thing that we can do is be sensitive to to play to what is happening because it is not a product it is a mood it's a movement it's a, a force field um and to answer your question or to start to answer that question for children it is their first way of interacting in the world it's the way that they make sense of what is what the world is and their first way of being able to communicate so for children before they can put into words what a feeling is and what they want to do about it there's just experience and children will do stuff and that is playing so they are trying to get some sort of response whether that's from a person or from their environment they're doing a thing and seeing what comes back and then doing another thing. And it's that conversation that is happening. Mm. For babies, even um, the, the very first time that they're making eye contact and they're sort of being seen, that's how they know that they exist. And I think that's so interesting because I don't think it changes that much. We want to be acknowledged and recognised and, um, and, and playing does that. So it's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna poke you or push you or like knock something over and see what your reaction is and it's like I have affected 
<clears throat> something that's made me feel seen. And there's something that is created between people when play is happening that is bigger than the two of them. And that sort of like really ordinary, magical stuff that happens when play is happening. It's like it in that way allows people to feel like other things are possible. So it's us turning our um, inner world into something tangible in the in the sort of outer world, making it seen in a way. Um, talking about the sort of, you know, the, the prevalence of our understanding of mental health and the importance of positive mental health and how resilience plays into that. Play is fundamental from my perspective and, and from everything that I read uh, to, you know, going back to that thing about being able to imagine other ways of being. So if I can, um, if I can um, tease you and then ooh, you feel a thing, but you sort of tease me back or you have a response between us, we're testing out like, what is possible? Is it possible to have a feeling about a thing, but be able to recover from it? So if you watch children, a lot of the time what they're doing is they're pushing themselves outside of their comfort zone and then understanding and learning how to recover. So it's that becoming stretchy. And when children haven't played, often they don't have that stretchiness. What they have is more like um, scar tissue. So it's it doesn't have that bounce in a sense. So we would talk about children having that bounceability and even though i'm i'm saying children I, and i do think that for for children play is their foundation and their their main way of communicating but it doesn't really stop there it doesn't need to stop there and i think the only thing that changes is the way that we play so all through the life cycle of human beings we have that need to do things that are more than just transactional in a sense um because this you know play is everything that is not functional so when i'm playing i am not doing something for a reward i'm not doing something um that is a, a, an external reward it's it's it can have a reward but it's a reward in itself in a sense um so and it has that quality of as if so it is like real life um but it's not but it's not real life real life in a sense i always like to to talk about um play being this sort of like warming and softening thing so if you're ever around a bunch of children um you know both of us have children if you're going somewhere you know, you can be in a very functional situation. Maybe if you're in an airport or something, if you're going through security, suddenly you can feel the mood being very serious because you don't really know what's going on. So everyone's sort of looking out. Once the, once children start to relax, their interactions um, can, you can understand that they're playing because there's some sort of like warm force field that comes off them. You know, whenever a group of children are playing, there's just a, a tangible, if you if you sort of click into the feeling, there's a tangible feeling and um, and sort of mood change that lets you know that play is happening. 
So it's um, safe to say, I think, that for us as adults, that that is a protective factor as well as for children. And I think children will play naturally. They don't need to be taught it. Yeah. They, they do need um, sort of signs that it's okay. They need to know that they're safe. They need to have space. They need to sort of um, be given those signals that it's okay for it to happen. But um, when that's in place, they will just play naturally and, and children play in all sorts of situations. Um, but But for adults, you know, we sort of need to make that happen in our life. And um, if I think back to the pandemic time when we were all locked down, the thing that really caused, one of the things that really caused the most sort of mental stress, I think, is we we no longer had things to look forward to. We no longer had uh, those sort of incidental meetups with family and friends mm-hmm. uh, where we were chatting about stuff and laughing about stuff. And when you take away all of those opportunities what is left is the sort of functional stuff and that paints a picture of kind of what life would be like without play really yeah absolutely you used a conversation um sorry you used a word the word conversation and I really like that as a way of thinking about play play is having a conversation with Mm. your environment Mm -hmm. with others and yourself I think Mm. that's a really really neat definition um and really sort of visualizes what play as you describe the prodding and the poking and mm-hmm. the sort of teasing and the testing boundaries and the exploring um yeah it's having a conversation with yeah. the world around you um I really yeah. like that where do you think we're at with our sort of societal understanding of play I think this is something that evolves during different time periods and as different research comes out and changes in education and parenting trends and and so on feed into that where do you think we're at right now in terms of the culture of kind of modern parenting um, and modern childhood of the the role of play do you think we acknowledge its significance and it's important or is it misunderstood and under threat Mm, that's such a good question. Thank you. Um, I think if I think about Western society and in my sort of sphere of understanding, I think there are parallels going on. There's almost like parallel paths because on the one hand, many children have more time and space than ever to play, more sort of toys. People understand that they need break times. People understand that children need time with their friends and there is this whole sphere of um sort of pedagogy of playful education that exists right so if we look at um sort of nordic countries where school starts much much later and it's understood that play is the thing up until kind of seven years old uh we're not trying to get children to sit still and write we are allowing them the space and freedom and time to roam and to experiment. And I would say in that situation, we've got it down because we sort of understand the importance for children of that. Um, But in the same time, you know, time of living, right? We've got other situations, children are in different situations where 
um, they're being hothoused from four years old to sit still and to use their pen properly and playtime is being uh, reduced and cut out. So those things, it's quite hard to get your head around. I think we live in a world, from my perspective at the moment, that is so um, sort of, you know, they're, they're, um, it's not homogenous. It's, yeah. it's, there are so many different experiences going on at once. And my worry right now is I just, my heart sinks when I look at the, the rhetoric around education, you know, full stop, that um, any sort of humanities type uh, degrees are look set in this country to be taken off the sort of funding grid. And I think that is really indicative of our, in this country, our mindset around um, creativity and play and sort of human thriving. Um, and I think it's economic as well. But if you have enough money and you have that that economic independence, you can make that happen for yourself. As a parent, if you have enough money, you can look at what's right for that child and put them in those situations that, that is really going to work for them. Whereas if you don't have that additional resource, it feels like we're just sort of churning children out. So it's, it, I think we, we make, we're making gains in the sense of real wide understanding of the importance of play. I mean, the fact that Lego fund the, um, the playful education, um, you know, university studies across the world, we're making huge leaps. Um, But then again, children are having on the other, on the other hand, their playtime's being cut into because we've got this idea that, um, the curriculum needs to be sort of like massively tight and 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 that is just you know super contradictory if I think about our work at Starlight what we can see across the country is that um, play specialists who make the experience of children in hospital um, as least traumatic as possible so we make sure that children have time and space to play in hospital and through play get to understand their illnesses and treatments um, and make sense of it themselves and and work out how to cope. Those roles are heavily funded in some places and non-existent in others. And so that's something that to us, you know, children with illnesses and disabilities need extra support to be able to play. So that for us is something that is is not okay. We need to standardise that across the board. Yeah, it feels a little bit like, we could summarize by saying that sort of from a sort of research and academic and perhaps Mm. somewhat expert point of view we are really quite advanced in terms of what we know about the science of play what we know about the benefits the impact on things like creativity on well-being on socialization and yet structurally we're like in the dark ages in response Mm. to that so we know all this stuff and I think during the pandemic as well I think actually just at like a mainstream parenting level the the knowledge and Mm. understanding of the role of play increased and became a bit more sophisticated we had head teachers sending letters home saying you know did you know that baking playing with your kids this is all learning and although you know for me and you working in the world of play you know we've known that for a long time but actually in the 
culture of like modern parenting mm. this was like a real light bulb moment for a mm. lot of parents mm. to be like oh make baking is also maths <laughs> yeah. wow um so I think I think you're right I think our knowledge is very at a really sort of high level but the structures in place um and and you can tell us more specifically about those facing children um who have special needs um are just not almost not listening to that or taking it seriously players always somewhat suffered from not being taken seriously and we do really need to take it seriously so a lot of the time when we think about playing we often associate that with good times of Mm. times of happiness when we're up when we're in the mood um when life is going well when it's the summer when it's holidays when it's weekends but your work what you do at starlight Mm. the families that you help and support for them they are in periods of time um and in situations which can be incredibly sad traumatic and distressful can you tell us about the role of play Mm -hmm. in times that are not light and breezy and happy and how it is perhaps different or not different and the impact that it has in those times yeah I absolutely can I think you you're absolutely right when you say that um play has suffered from not being taken seriously and it's such a a contradictory sort of term even to even to sort of put that those things in a sentence but going back to my point about play being the norm for children like it's their it's their everything it's their way of of self-learning and self-regulating um and communicating that normality is what we draw on when we think about and plan for and protect play for children when they're sick because all of that stuff, right, going into hospital and, you know, maybe whoever's looking after you is feeling a bit stressed and anxious because uh, because you're not well. So you're picking up on that and you're in a strange environment. Again, that slightly puts you on edge. You're maybe having some anticipation about what's going to ha- come next. And that waiting time is really exacerbating that. And treatments generally are not fun. So having an injection or, you know, having your blood taken, having the the thought of having an operation, those are all scary things. So what we can what we can do is we can make sure that environment affords play opportunities and that for the child actually cuts through all of that stuff. So it means that life is normal. As long as playing can still happen, then. um. Then, then things aren't as out of the ordinary as they as they seemed. So that it takes the edge off the the sort of nervousness. So just to sort of give you a couple of examples, if um, so, there's a clinic that I often um, support with where children come once a month or once every eight weeks to have an injection and uh, have some blood taken, and it, it's something that really really helps them and means they don't have to have daily bloods taken because of their condition. So they travel from across the country and it's not um, once they get into the clinic room, things to have, have to happen very quickly and it's not necessarily a pleasant procedure. So what we do is we take that waiting space and we put really fun things in there and children see the same children 
uh, over and over again. So they sort of get to know who's there. They become very familiar. And it becomes like a little after school club or, you know, what it, it's like someone's living room. It's like um, suddenly it's not a waiting room anymore. You get games of double that are just out of control and uh, the, the the noise level is going up. Um, children f- are not thinking about what's coming next. Yeah. And there are children who are, you know, playing with Lego on the floor and that more than the moment. Okay? So it's very ordinary. It's just a game of double, yeah. but it's magic that happens within that ordinary stuff um, that creates a normality, their normality that they can feel comfortable in and it creates connections so whether that's um, a child that they're playing with or the parent that they came with they feel more connected by playing together and that's you know that is what from my observations um makes them bigger than they were when they came in and they were a little bit nervous so suddenly they're feeling strong and they're feeling like they can do this and um and nine out of ten times they go in and it's and they can do it you know without falling to pieces I love that and it's it's about holding space and valuing the importance of that moment of play and I think one of the other things that is slightly misunderstood about play is that the point of play is just to have fun and enjoyment in a particular Mm. moment and yes that is a massive benefit but actually that magic that you talk about when it really kicks in and Mm. starts to take shape is when they carry it with them into experiences outside of the play and you described it beautifully there as I think you said they get they get bigger Mm. that they sort of you know they stand up a bit taller and it's like they've had this um this kind of like spell almost put over Mm. them that then they're able to take with them and it doesn't mean that that, you know, it solves everything or suddenly everything is easy breezy. But what is happening in the brain when we play is that plasticity, that stretchiness that you talked about. Yeah. We see more routes to possibility. And I also believe that to some extent, what we get from play is hope. Like yes. um, like anything's possible. Um, yeah. Like we can imagine different scenarios, like it will kind of be okay. I think that is actually something anyone in any situation kind of has a little little lingering sense of from Mm. every time they engage in play I love that yeah I love that that's absolutely right what what would you be able to tell us because I know that Starlight um also is supporting play workers I believe in in hospitals what could you explain what that is and, and what they do yes I absolutely can first um first sort of foundation of talking about that is that in many hospitals there are play workers and there are play specialists and they do different jobs so I have been um, a play worker most of my life and as a play worker I am that sensitive adult who is and the clinic that I was just describing it does take sensitive um responses and prompts and uh, knowing when to allow space for stuff to happen as an adult for for that to to work so the play worker generally has a level three qualification they have some understanding of how to um, sensitively respond and allow space for children's own play to happen 
So they understand they need to be a reflective practitioner themselves. So they need to understand, um, oh, well, I believe, they need to understand their own play needs, their own play drives, how they played as a child, what their unmet play needs might be, so that they can be really aware in that moment when play is happening of where they end, where that child begins. Um, so they can step in when they're invited and then step out and let it happen. Play workers are super skilled individuals and um, they walk that very fine line between playful approach and a selflessness actually that understands about making space. Play specialists have a different qualification. So they do all of that and they have a qualification which is a foundation degree and experience of working in a clinical environment. And they have skills of supporting children um, to tap into to their own play, um, to use that play and playfulness to uh, develop coping and to develop skills of, of um, uh, sort of resilient practice and understanding when treatments and procedures are happening. So they're not play therapists, as a play therapist works like a, a psychodynamic counsellor and takes a traumatised child and tries to help them work through it. A play specialist works in that other space, which is we are going to try to cope in the moment and we're going to try to build resilience so that we can avoid trauma happening. So in a hospital or a hospice or in the community, a play specialist um harnesses that that playfulness they know about play so they are immediately often recognized by children as a different kind of adult and uh, you know they, they are that sort of like pied piper in a sense so they they immediately are recognized as like somebody who's on their side in a sense and they um are able to offer resources that that child can find a playful hook into um, often that is the way that children decide for themselves how they'd like to be distracted when a procedure is happening and they also have that skill of using that sort of playful reverie to be able to talk through what is about to happen how we feel about that what maybe has just happened and and, and how do we make sense of that so they're walking alongside the child and their family often to um you know be that particular kind of adult in that space who's not here to uh to to, to do the treatment not here to um you know not here for a purpose other than to be alongside you and be your support yeah it's, it's an amazing am it's an amazing job yeah i was gonna say how like what how significant are those individuals in those processes and are they is it is it underfunded i'm assuming um is it recognized like what what's the situation with with protecting these roles and getting more funding yeah i mean i could talk about this all day because if um, it's coming from an nhs hospital i you know we had an a, a very large team they, they have a large team there and it is recognized in every speciality that the play specialist is a key person in that child's care pathway so there are many situations where you won't even start a procedure until you get that play specialist there because it's not like treating adults. Adults have to work it out for themselves and they have the option to just 
not get treated. Whereas with children, we understand that they're not um, they're not there yet. So you 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 walk that very very fine line between children are human beings with with choices and they have to have dignity. So they've got to comply essentially with the with this treatment, which is not going to be nice. So they are um, they are call to the to the treatment team. And um, and as such, they will take referrals and will be a, a key part of the, the, the treatment plan. The weird thing about it and what we're really putting a lot of attention to and um, we're working with NHS England to leverage those points of um, influence to make changes is that if you go onto the NHS website now, today, and look at careers, you won't find a play specialist in uh, cl the clinical grouping. You won't find them in allied health professionals with the um, physiotherapists or occupational therapists. You won't even find them in clinical support services. You find them in um, corporate corporate services, and they're in the same category um, in this listing as nursery workers or or, or play workers or um, or administrators. And that is fundamentally telling us that the system misunderstands yeah, this role. Yeah. So with our uh, play campaigning, which you can find about out about on our website and help to support us, we're trying to leverage that change because until the system properly, re properly recognises the importance of this role in children's care, then the funding won't be protected the access won't be um, equitable across the country. And fundamentally, there will be children who will be missing out. Yeah. And what you said earlier, that sometimes a procedure process can't even start, they won't even start it until that person is there, just shows the significance of the impact that that person can make and the role of play. And as you describe these play specialists, I'm assuming very in tune with their the characteristic of playfulness. Yeah. Um, something that I speak a lot about to parents is how just how important that is to kids, like that ability mm. to like be curious, be open, um, be able to sort of get on their level and have that lightness to mm. how you communicate and approach things. I think is so underrated and not spoken about enough and the exciting thing about the characteristic of, of playfulness is you can train it like you can practice it it's not that some people are just born you know more playful than others it is absolutely all have the potential to unleash and I think you're you're sort of working in a scenario you know where we see it almost at its most intense and its most uh, kind of powerful in its role. But I think all of us on our kind of day to day lives and interacting with children can really just take a glimmer from that mm. to, to to just recognize the significance that us role modeling that characteristic of playfulness can have on on raising our kids. Absolutely. It's not, um, there is a, a level of comfort, I think, that yeah. people come with. And confidence. That, yes. Yeah. And maybe a self-perception that yes. either, oh, I am, or I yes. am not playful. And 
you going back to that thing, you know, actually play is not just fun. And, and, as, and, uh, and as adults, sometimes when we look at children playing, our discomfort is almost unbearable. Um, if we see children playing ways that we don't maybe recognize as ways that we like to play or that we think is nice and tidy mm-hmm. and clean or fun or friendly or, or, or any of that stuff. But when we when we can understand that it's about human expression yeah. and um, working things out with each other, working out what are uh, what the possibilities are, as you said, then we can afford to step back just that little bit. Um, and I think, you know, as an example, if we look at play fighting, so uh, there's there's often a, a discomfort around yeah. rough and tumble play. Um, and if we have never done that and we're not comfortable with it, maybe we didn't have siblings or friends or or aunties and uncles that did that with us, it's it might bring up a discomfort in ourselves and i think all we really need to do in that situation is to recognize the discomfort and just take a pause before responding and in the same way as we may not have had those experiences of sort of super playful childhoods it is never too late to have that yes. person started. Yes, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I have this term, um, playhood. So like we have childhood, we have adulthood. But the cool thing about your playhood is it it, it doesn't have transitions. It doesn't have yeah. stages. It's a one continuum and you always have it and you can just get from it whatever you need at that particular life yeah. stage. We're sort of like... We like to partition ourselves, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, but actually we're all on one continuum. And I think it's the playhood that we're on and we just need to figure out what we need from it at that particular moment in time. Yes, I love it. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Laura, I'd love to hear a bit more about some of the children that you support and um, some of those children who are seriously ill, they have disabilities, what are the, I suppose, the barriers to play for them that they might face that perhaps um, some of us are unaware of having not parented a child um, with those needs that I'd love to just, yeah, just take some moment to have some empathy here to understand more about the barriers to play for the kids that you support. That is great. Thank you so much for asking me that question. I think it's important to straight away say, you know, children are not a homogenous group and and the children that we support are not a homogenous yeah. group either. So it's important to recognise that. If I, um, you know, just recently, this weekend, this last weekend gone, we facilitated a, a trip to an amazing children's festival and um, about 35 of the families who we support came along to that festival and um there were some of those children that are wheelchair users and have uh, complex disabilities okay so and some of those children who who whose illnesses are not so visible it's a huge range so if i start with the sort of what i would say are the overarching barriers to play when children are um 
you know, ill or have complex disabilities. Um, the first and, and sort of probably biggest barrier is um, adults' discomfort, potentially, mm-hmm. of difference mm. and of taking a moment to look at that individual child and think and maybe quieten ourselves down and be sensitive to what their play cues are and what their play needs might be. Um, so that I think is an overarching thing. It's like our discomfort of um, of non sort of non typical uh, children's play. Yeah. And then to get into it a little bit more, uh, we've got the um, structural barriers. So if a child is in a wheelchair, particularly if they can't transfer, so they they need yeah. to be in their wheelchair all the time. There are certain things that need to be in place, right? So every venue needs needs please needs to have at least one changing places yeah because if we're talking about dignity and um and that's not just for the child so dignity for the child and care and dignity for that carer having a clean safe well uh, sort of well stocked well maintained space to change your child um is just so basic and so many places don't have it or they say they have it and it's just not quite that or they have one and maybe something is broken but they didn't didn't think to say or check that um that is just it breaks my heart because it's such a it's just such a basic thing that places do ramps and um you know play spaces which um you know have equipment that can be adapted to children in many many different kinds of um situations so i would love for every space that we go to to have those things basic basic changing places uh proper ramps um play equipment that is accessible and inclusive and for us as a as a society to really understand what those things are and mm-hmm. to make it as a basic to get those things right for disabled children you know if that is just the basic standard then we get that right for the whole of society for all children you know if we i think that if we are a community that takes care of you know those who need the most support and then work outwards from there then at a psychological level everybody then feels more connected and they can relax and they will be having a better time Uh, and I don't think that's radical so there's those barriers um that, that are very sort of structural ones and I think when we think about play so our our children who are not as um are not able to as easily communicate with us I think that is my sort of next biggest um, barrier. And that's where it comes back to us as adults um, is getting some comfort with stopping and um, taking things down just a, a, a stage or two and just being being quiet enough to see what is being communicated with us. Because even though it's not obvious, most most all of the children that we work with can 
communicate mm. their needs and wants in some mm. way with us. Um, so, yeah, and then it, it's as simple as if if we do have children, you know, or if children have lines attached, feeding tubes attached, yes, there is an element of risk, but you know what? Play is risky. Yep. The best, best kind of play is risky. So it's... Um, having environments where children can take those risks and we know that we'll be able to sort of deal with them. Many of the children that we uh, speak to when we go to things like um, activity days, sporting days, that kind of thing, what they say to us is that they are never allowed to do these, these sports or anything with any risk when they're at school. They're excluded because of the risk assessments that schools wow. do. Yeah, and so then suddenly when they're in a, a group of like-minded families or families who are in similar situations, suddenly they're liberated and they don't have to explain so much their situation and they are able to take those risks because, well, because we've made it possible. That is, yeah, that is a really big one. So risk-taking in play, mm. as you and I know, is absolutely imperative to building mm. skills like confidence and grit and I think the thing about risk that people sort of sometimes misinterpret is that it's not just like you know taking a massive leap off a climbing frame or whatever that is one form of risk but there is a spectrum of risk for everyone and there is a a sort of a journey to increasing that risk through play and without the access to you know just starting on what is your own version of risk it's you know going a little bit higher here or yeah. going a little bit further here or you know just talking to someone new or whatever it might be everyone has steps to that and it's not actually it's not by age <laughs> it's it's which we often are obsessed with you mm. know what can kids do at each particular age and particularly for the children that mm. you're talking about it's personal to them um and and to have that idea of there being like a risk assessment and that uh, that opportunity to step onto that ladder of their own little risk journey um mm. i think that is um really sad yeah i mean during the so if I think about hospitals, there is always a push and a pull and a tension between infection control, yes, you know, the the, the fire officer and the, you know, the, the people in the team who are trying to protect children's right to play and access to play. During the sort of COVID craziness, that was felt so keenly across the country because suddenly where we've managed to protect some space for these toys, which of course always hold a risk of infection because mm -hmm. they're an object. Mm. Um, I remember writing a policy and getting it cleared where that, that started with a statement that said, yes, toys are a risk and infection risk, but play is so important to children that it is not acceptable to mitigate that risk through just eradicating play. Yeah. We have to find other ways to do that. But because COVID was so deeply traumatic yes. and, um, and enormous, playrooms and spaces were closed across mm. the country in all hospitals. And there are some, some hospitals and, and other settings that haven't managed to regain those spaces. And that is another thing 
that for us we just think is absolutely unacceptable that children have such a fundamental deep need to see each other and to play beside each other and to um, use those materials you know toys are just props basically to enable play to happen the toys are not the play yeah but the fact of them being there you know can you know for some children can be the thing that allows play to happen right um and if those spaces are still closed and toys are not able to be used then <clears throat> then that is a um a sort of unacceptable restriction yeah totally it's the invitation isn't it that that yeah. we want to create like you say it's not about the toy per se it's the invitation to play and the cues that they are welcome here and that you know we want to spark you know those magical moments happening in those very unplayful environments that they have to go into I want to ask you something that I I hope this doesn't put you on the spot it's not intending to but I know you guys do so many different initiatives from organizing sort of like big days out and trips um experiences to distraction boxes and funding play workers I was wondering if you might be able to share your thoughts on like where like what makes the biggest impact like what are the things that you've seen that truly bring that that play into these traumatic difficult situations that families are experiencing that you think that is that's that's the thing for me that is truly transformational I know they're all valuable and important but I'd love to hear like what you think makes the biggest impact Mm. Yeah, that is a really difficult question, Um, but I have lots of thoughts about this. Um, I truly believe, as I I said before, that it's not the objects that make the play. It is the skilled and sensitive individuals who are holding that space, as as the term that you use that I really love. And I um, was at a visit the other day to a small uh, local hospital in North London and they have a team of three play specialists, not all full-time, but there's three of them that, that cover the whole hospital. And they just said to um, us that they have literally zero budget for any materials and that without what we are providing to them, so all of the distraction materials, sensory units, the gaming stations, they just would have nothing. They have to make these charity um, applications to get any materials at all and that just blows my mind because I think we we're able through these objects to support the work of the skilled individual Mm. right so one thing that is new that we have um, you know breaking news we are funding for play specialists um, for, for play specialist posts that are so one of them has been employed Uh, already we're doing interviews in the next couple of months for the other three and two of those posts will be in Wales at a hospital that already have two part-time play specialists across this enormous area which for us that was just not enough so we worked with Play Wales as partner to look at where the most need was and start that recruitment and I'm really excited to be able to support that because I think having trained, skilled, qualified individuals who will be able then to support those those children by referral 
in the community and then support their journey into hospital, I think is going to make such an impact. And the posts in London are both palliative care posts. So paediatric palliative care services require play specialist yeah. support. And both the play specialists that we have funded in London are in different settings, but they, they are working with children who are receiving palliative care. So remembering that palliative care is about quality of life. So it's not always just the last days of a child's life, but when a child is um, often getting respite care because this condition is so uh, serious and complex and is not going away, um, that they're, that, that that team around the child is able to focus on real quality of life play is so important in that situation. So it's a bit of a cop-out what I'm saying to you, but it's like all of the resources that we have are nothing without our relationships with those people who yeah. are directly are directly interacting with those children. And so it's the, for that reason that we have found um sourced funding to, to put those posts in place and that we're really investing in those individuals so we've got a program of um, continuing pressure professional development courses um, events and uh, sort of forums for them to come together so they can learn from each other and have that sort of opportunity to to get their own resilience actually uh, in, in what they do um, so, yeah, a bit of a cop out, but I think that's the nuanced picture is that yeah. all of those things that that we do support the work to happen. So it's it's really the people. Yeah, it's so important. And it just feels, you know, I see that I have this sort of vision of this sort of army of play people who are, you know, God forbid that any of these things happen to our children. That is what we would want to find um on the on the end of that it's so important and we have to increase our understanding of the role of play in moments that are really difficult to mm -hmm. that lightness it is it is it is hard and it can sometimes be hard particularly I'd imagine for the parents to, to play in these moments but it is as we've talked about in this amazing conversation um that the magic that comes through it it's more than we can wrap our hands around and, and even explain even though we have all of the science it's it's so important the work that you're doing Laura where can people support Starlight how do we get behind what you're doing um where do, where do we go? What's the best way to support you? So please do visit our website. So if you search Starlight UK, Starlight Children's Foundation UK, you'll be able to see on our website all of the things that we're doing at the moment. I'd really love for everyone to uh, take a moment to look at our campaigning. So you'll see our front page at the moment says, play is a human right. So a lot of what I've talked about today um, will be there's more detail of, about that on our website and um, we are always accepting referrals uh, if you think that you are a family who would benefit from our services or you know a family who would benefit from our services and um, the the eligibility criteria is also there um, if you know of a hospital or hospice who doesn't have starlight resources let them know about us. Um, so please visit us there. You can look at our Instagram. So again, search Starlight UK and we'll be able to keep you up to date visually on all the things that we're engaged in. 
and you can follow us on Twitter. So at, yeah, again, Starlight UK. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, thank you so much and thank you so thank much you. to you and your team for all of the awesome work that you're doing. Um, yeah, I wish you every success with your plans and upcoming campaigns and certainly, you know, from a personal note, look forward to collaborating with you guys in the future. This conversation has been so important and, and so enjoyable. Thank you. Emma, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time.